prices of spare parts have long been a bugaboo for the military. Now the Senate version of the 2023 Defense Authorization Bill contains something called a Progress Payment Incentive Pilot Program. For how it works and what the benefits might be, we turn to Project on Government Oversight Defense Analyst Julia Gledhill. Ms. Gledhill, good to have you on. Thanks for having me. And you have been looking at this idea of prices that the Pentagon pays for millions of possible spare parts for its platforms and so forth. What's the background here? Sure. In weapons acquisition, as you know, we often see delays and cost overruns on the military's biggest and most expensive programs, but also um, on smaller programs for spare parts for equipment and, and big weapon systems. On top of that, as you know, uh, the Defense Inspector General has revealed several instances of contractors price gouging the Pentagon dating back over 20 years. And the most egregious and recent example is the example of Transdime, which, as you note, is a company that made nearly $21 million in excess profits in only two and a half years overcharging the Pentagon for spare parts. And so this progress payment incentive pilot program is really a big step for Congress to get the ball rolling on preventing this type of military price gouging. And how would it work, this new pilot program that's so far only in the Senate version? That's correct. It's in the Senate Armed Services Committee version of the NDAA. And think of the progress payment incentive pilot as a carrot. It would address these longstanding issues of cost overruns and delivery delays and price gouging by driving military contractor performance with financial incentives. In other words, contractors would be financially rewarded for meeting performance criteria and transparency standards, like meeting program milestones and schedules 95% of the time, um, disclosing particular financial information like first-tier subcontractor data, and arguably most importantly, uh, contractors would be rewarded for providing the Pentagon certified cost and pricing information in a timely manner. Certified cost and pricing information is really important because it helps the Pentagon ensure it's paying contractors fair prices, which would help the department avoid situations like overpaying for things like spare parts, whether it be pins or bevels, and hopefully prevent the type of price gouging that we've seen uh, from companies like Transdime. Yeah, there's a lot of, I guess, approaches to the spare parts issue. One of the challenges, though, is the long life cycle of some of these weapon systems, sometimes 20, 30, 40, even 50 years. And sometimes the OEM has gone out of business or has merged and there's no real incentive for anyone to make the parts unless they can, you know, frankly, make a killing on them. Does this pilot project address that issue, the, the long-range problem of, of parts? Yeah, you know, I think it does. And a big reason why is because the program, you know, it not only helps taxpayers and the government by avoiding price gouging and, and therefore government waste, but it also really helps businesses. There's a strong business case for the program in that, By adjusting contract financing policy to align progress payment rates with performance, the Pentagon would give well-performing companies the opportunity to increase their cash flow to an extent not currently possible. And the reason I think that this kind of addresses this longer standing issue of of spare parts and overcharging by companies that may have, you know, multi-year contracts is because well-performing companies could receive up to 95% in financing for incurred costs 
as they move forward with the contract compared to the customary progress payment rate of 80%. And so this is appealing to contractors because, you know, say you have a multi-year contract, you are always looking to increase the amount of government financing that you can receive because the federal government does not reimburse interest payments on loans. So there's a strong business case here, um, particularly for small businesses who, you know, have greater trouble entering into the industrial space. Got it. We're speaking with Project on Government Oversight Defense Analyst Julia Gledhill. So in other words, this incentive payment system could perhaps maybe develop alternative sources, competitive sources for spare parts. Right. You know, it definitely levels the playing field to a certain extent because not only does it increase progress payment rate um, up to 95% for well-performing companies, but it also lowers advance payments for large companies to 50%. So, you know, these prime defense contractors would need to kind of meet the same transparency and performance standards um, laid out in this pilot to maximize the, the financing that they would receive at the beginning of each billing period in a particular contract. I think it's important to note that, as I said before, contractors do receive a customary progress payment rate of 80%. So if we're already giving prime contractors a significant amount of financing, why don't we also condition that on certain you know, performance and transparency criteria so that they really have to give the DOD assurances that they're not over doing things like overcharging the department for spare parts. Right. So spare parts planning could should be maybe more upfront in the program planning aspect. Right. And, you know, there are a lot of different types of contracts in the defense contracting space, and I think it can get a little bit complicated, but there are a lot of loopholes in contracting regulation that allow companies to withhold certified cost and pricing information from the Pentagon. The department isn't able to ensure that they're paying fair and reasonable prices. And so this program is a carrot. It says, hey, we're already giving companies a certain level of financing. We're going to increase the amount of financing that you can receive contingent on your ability to meet these performance and transparency standards. And that levels the playing field for defense contractors who have definitely taken up a lot more real estate in the space since the conglomeration going back to the 90s. And so a smaller company is going to have a lot more opportunity to contract with the Pentagon, not only because of the fact that the program limits financing to 50% for large contractors, but also because one of the incentives in this pilot program for primes is to meet certain subcontracting goals. And so prime contractors would actually receive a financial incentive to maximize the opportunity for small businesses to contract with the Pentagon. But just to make it clear, the performance goals that would be met with higher amounts of financing by the Pentagon, those goals would include the spare parts question. So not directly. The reason that the pilot addresses the spare parts issue is that companies would receive a financial reward or timely responses to requests from the Pentagon to provide the certified cost and pricing information, the lack of which is one of the main reasons that the Pentagon is overcharged by spare parts. Right. Is another reason perhaps in, you know, in your general research that they're not very good at planning their requirements for spare parts and 
when it becomes an ad hoc, oh my gosh, I need this part tomorrow, as opposed to we're going to need 57 of these parts over the next 13 months on this delivery schedule. That gives them more leverage yeah, over contractors. That's an interesting question. I haven't found evidence to suggest that, but you're absolutely right in your earlier statement that you know some of our spare parts suppliers are sole source suppliers. And so should that be the case when the Pentagon needs spare parts quickly, that would definitely be a strain on a sole source provider that maybe hasn't planned for that and there aren't alternatives. But the short answer is I haven't found evidence to that to suggest that that would be the case. I think that lack of competition, but also lack of financial transparency from sole source providers specifically is kind of the more important and more difficult challenge for the Pentagon in ensuring that they're paying fair prices. Julia Gledhill is defense analyst at the Project on Government Oversight. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And we'll post this interview along with a link to her article on parts prices at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive-in-residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there and I really grew up there, um, I, didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers and, you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did 
you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job, and he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, 
is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I re- realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, 
And you're going to get in there quickly um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha. And thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply. Some people were made to follow the instructions. We were made to make our own. To always measure twice and never cut corners. Unless, of course, we've got a compound miter saw. Northern Tool and Equipment is a problem solver's paradise. There's nothing we can't find, fix, or figure out together. We're made for this. Start solving your projects today at northerntool.com.